No one has lost a dime, okay? Especially those following traditional advice, nobody's lost a dime. And it's because we're, we're measuring the wrong thing. We're stuck in this, we all are taught to count chickens before they hatch. And we've gotten so good at it that then when they don't hatch, we actually feel like we lost something. You are now entering a new paradigm. So here is my issue. I wanted to find the answers to life's biggest questions. Things like, how do I become happy and live with purpose? How do I make more money doing what I love? And what does it mean to be truly successful in all areas of life? My name is Josh Forty, at Josh Forty on Instagram, and I ask life's biggest questions and share the answers with you. My goal is to help you find purpose, happiness, and open your mind to new realms of possibility by helping you think differently about everything you do, know, and understand. On this podcast, we think different, we dream bigger, and we live in a world without limits. This is a new paradigm. Welcome to the Think Different Theory. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Think Different Theory. My name is Josh Forty, and we're just going to dive right into it here today, guys, because the coronavirus is among us, and it is affecting the world. There's like this huge, massive what is it? The pandemic? Is that what it's called? Big panic, right? Where the whole world is in, in chaos right now. Well, I heard that Italy, Italy quarantined like a quarter of their population or something like that, like 16 million people or something ridiculous like that, which is just insane. You've got the stock market in an utter collapse and tumble. You've got the world markets freaking out. We've got the war on oil now, which I don't even know if that has anything to do with the coronavirus. And so anyway, one of the things that I've been trying to do with Think Different Theory is figure out a way to work in current events without having to be up to date on every last little thing that's going on. As you guys know, I had my, my little run there where I kind of went political and I got out of that somewhat to the extent of I'm still very well educated in that space. I don't talk about it as much because I want to be able to present solutions, right? I'm a very solutions-based person that says, hey, if you're going to tell me to freak out about something or tell me to do something, like there's got to be an answer, there's got to be a solution. And very quickly, I realized that um, that's actually not like at all how our government works. They, um, they like fear and uh, they, they don't really present solutions. It's just all corrupt anyway. So I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna go into politics, but I really do believe that it is important to understand what's going on in the world today, understand how things are affected and things are changing. And one of the things that I think is probably the most mystical smoke and mirrors hiddenness of it all is the financial markets and how the financial markets work. Big money, big banks, you really don't know what's going on in there. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to bring on experts and people that know about what's going on in certain areas and talk to them about current events. And so um, one of the th things that I'm trying to do with the podcast and with the show is kind of find through trial and error and through interviewing people, people that I trust in certain areas so that when stuff like the coronavirus does come up, when there is a economic collapse, um, that I can point back to certain things and say, hey, I'm going to bring you back on and you guys can go back and listen to the, the same person talk from that point of perspective and view and see the consistencies there and see what they're saying. And we've had my next guest on the show twice now. We actually really recently just had him on for the opening of season two, but I've brought him back on to talk about the financial markets and to talk about how the coronavirus specifically is affecting the financial markets. Because I mean, on Monday, holy cow, what, two we had 7.9% wiped off the, the, the stock market, $2.2 trillion down or whatever it was, 2,000 points down in one day. So like, there's a lot going on. And I wanted to bring on people that know what they're talking about, understand their craft, and, and can explain this to us in a way that we can understand, not so much so we need to do anything about it, but just so that we understand what's going on and if decisions need to be made, we have a complete picture of what it is that we're actually doing here. So my next guest is the man, the myth, the legend himself who we've had on twice, Mr. Brad Gibb. Welcome back to Think Different Theory, man. I, I'm very, very excited to have you back on here um, because, well, I haven't even let you introduce yourself or bring, say hi yet, but I, I watched, uh, what, two days ago, I think I boxed you and I was like, dude, the live that you just did in your Facebook group where you explained how the coronavirus is affecting the economy and what you learned from being on Wall Street, working for Goldman Sachs during the 2008 financial crisis just blew my mind. And I was like, all right, we got to bring you back on. So thank you for making time to come back on the show. I'm super, super excited to have you here, man. 
Josh, man, your show is one of the few that I would drop everything to make time to be on. And it's one of the only ones, like this is the kind of stuff we only share behind the scenes with people that I can have that that context with. I didn't do a live in my personal profile out for the entire market. I think it would break people's brains, right? But your audience is one that I'm actually really excited to share with it and get get that feedback and see how it went because um, I, I really like the, the engagement we've had in the past and then the way that they're already trained and used to, to thinking different and asking questions and, and really getting down and understanding the fundamentals of what's working. So I'm excited to be here and share it. I, I turned down a lot of other interviews because I was like, no way, man. Like, like you said, with, with politics, I don't even like being labeled a pundit. You almost labeled me a pundit. I'm really <laughs> because I'm, I am not a trained pundit. I will, won't like take the party lines of what should be out there and being said, right? But we, I, I do feel very uniquely qualified to talk about what is really happening and make a connection between something that seems totally unrelated. Like, why would a bunch of people getting sick in a new way wipe out $4 trillion of wealth in the United States? Like, where's that connection? Right. And, and I think the thing, I mean, and you're, you're pretty controversial when it comes to money because of the information that you do know. And uh, guys, you can actually see he literally dropped everything. He's not even in his studio right now. He's at his, he's in his home office at his home to do this. So I, like I said, I really do appreciate you making the time uh, for this, but you, you have a completely different view and understanding of money because of your background at Goldman Sachs. You were there working at Goldman Sachs during the 2008 financial crash. And we have a crazy story that you're going to share here in just a minute um, about what happened there. And I was just like, what on earth? Um, really quickly though, before we dive into that, I do want to give you the chance um, to kind of let people know about your podcast. It just so happens that this worked out really, really well this week. You have a brand new podcast that yeah. just launched this week right now. Um, yep. And I, just really, really briefly, uh, for those people that are brand new to you or that have not heard you, or maybe they have heard you, but want to know a little bit more about this, we're going to talk, guys, and the type of content that you're going to hear today is basically what you're going to hear over on this podcast. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's epic. I've listened to it. It's phenomenal. But explain 30 seconds, a minute long, what people can expect on the podcast, what it's there for, and how they can go subscribe to it. Yeah. So the podcast is the culmination of 10 years of, of my own journey, my two business partners, Ryan and Jimmy, our journey to becoming financially free. Um, 10 years ago, we were stuck. We were frustrated. We, we came to one solid conclusion that traditional advice was never going to get us where we wanted to go. But there was also this huge gap in the normal, like, well, like the gurus on stage teaching, because it just seemed like chasing the latest and greatest. There was no foundation, there was no framework. So right. that's what we dedicate ourselves to learning. Um, and, and that's now what, what we're teaching. So it started with us, it started with a small group, then we launched to a much larger movement. And now we're pulling back the curtains, and it's the only podcast dedicated to the foundations, the frameworks, the formulas to becoming financially free. And we believe anybody that follows that, not only, we don't just believe it, we've proven that anybody that follows that can be themselves financially free in 10 years or less. So that's what the podcast is about. I love it. I love it. Um, cashflowtactics.com slash listen, I believe is- Or podcast. Or podcast. I think they both go there. Yeah, yeah they both go. podcast will get you there too. Okay, four slash podcast. So cashflowtactics.com slash podcast or slash listen. We'll link that down below. Guys, go check it out. For those of you that like are like, I don't know about this guy, Two, he's done two episodes on the podcast. Go listen to him. It'll blow your mind. Russell Brunson, Steve Larson, Rachel Peterson, big, big, big names. Give this guy all their money and are like, yo, what do we do with it? Okay, so he, he's very, very legit. All right, but I think this is a perfect segue into what we're talking about here, okay? Um, <sighs> coronavirus has freaked out the world. I mean, South by Southwest, what? That gets canceled. $350 million in revenue lost to the city of Austin. All right, like that's, ginormous. That's huge. People freaking out. Uh, people in Omaha here where I live have been exposed to it. California. I mean, I went to Costco and Walmart the other day and we're yeah, talking like so empty. Out. I mean, go look at my Instagram story, like empty, empty, empty. Everything's gone. And you said that you started your financial freedom journey about 10 years ago or so, 10 years uh, or maybe a little bit more than that ago. Uh, and I think that kind of started around the time when you were at Goldman and the markets crashed. And I think that's kind of where I want to pick up this story and kind of bring in some insider stuff. So I'm going to kind of turn it over to you and let you just kind of explain this because I know, I know we want to talk about the fact that, hey, people really didn't lose any money. Um, and we all, then we want to talk about how companies can go and kind of dump bad stocks and things like this and just kind of all of that. So take us back there to where you were and explain to us how the heck 
coronavirus is literally causing all this massive panic. Okay, Josh, wait a minute. You just floated a concept there that I, I think probably half your listeners are like, now their brains are stuck. They're like, wait a minute. You, you just said no one lost any money. What, what the heck? Like, let's define that for a second yes. and then let's back up and talk okay. some context. All right, let's do that, yeah. Because what's hap- what's, what everybody's freaking out about in the market is all this money lost. And now we're turning to what's Wall Street going to do? What's the Fed going to do? How are we going to fix all this money that's lost? And I always, when everybody says this, I always sit around and scratch my head because I'm like, no one has lost a dime, okay? Especially those following traditional advice, nobody's lost a dime. And it's because we're, we're measuring the wrong thing. We're stuck in this, we all are taught to count chickens before they hatch. And we've gotten so good at it that then when they don't hatch, we actually feel like we lost something. And, and just okay? to clarify, nobody that hasn't sold. And that's the big, that's the, that's the big key to it, right? Because you've got to stop measuring your wealth in what's a, a third party's opinion, some dude's opinion of what it's going to sell for. And by the way, the S&P 500 index is just some guy's opinion of what something is worth sometime in the future. It, it's not a real thing. It's a guess. It's an index. It's, it's a projection. It's not real. It's not real money. It's not real wealth. So the way I frame it is I think about it this way. One thing I happen to invest in is real estate. And even when I, I had real estate in 2008, when the valuation of real estate came down, And when it did that, I didn't count myself as having lost any money because I still had the same number of houses. I had the same number of doors. I had the same number of renters. I didn't actually lose anything. And if you take it from that context, like if you you buy- So so what you're you're saying here is, hey, listen, I own, and I'm just going to make up an arbitrary number here. You own 50 houses, right? And you've got 50 renters, 50 cash flow and units or whatever. The markets crash. The value of your real estate, if you were to go and sell one of those houses, once again, arbitrary numbers here. Let's say each one of those houses across the board was worth $200,000 before the market crashed. And now the market crashes and they're worth $120,000. You're saying, hey, listen, I didn't lose anything. The value may have gone down, but- I still own 50 houses and they're still producing money for me. Exactly. Because a valuation on a piece of real estate is just, it's not a real thing. It's some, someone's opinion, someone's best guess that if somebody came along today and bought it for me, what they would pay, right? And the stock market works the same way. It's just what somebody is currently today amidst all the fear and anxiety and stress of, of this outbreak. That's what somebody would pay for it right now. But if you owned 100 shares of ExxonMobil, guess what? You still own 100 shares of ExxonMobil. You didn't lose anything. The real asset that you have hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't really changed. It's just its positioning in the market has changed. And, and if anything, that should expose how, how broken our, the way that we measure our wealth is when it's all measured on appearance, when it's measured on public opinion. It's a very dangerous place to be because we see what happens like it's happened today as people get in a frenzy. If your wealth is tied to the general opinion of the masses, you're in a pretty tough spot. Okay, so for the, for the dummy on here that is like, all right, because I, I understand what you're saying. I went and I watched yep. your live and everything like that, but just so we're very, very clear on what we're talking about here. I have $50,000 into the market, let's say, all right? I'm, I, once I, I don't have 50,000 in the market, I'm smarter than that, but I, uh-huh. I put $50,000 into the market, Yep. Mm, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago when Trump gets elected, right? My $50,000 that I put in, let's say I bought a, a share at 50 bucks a share of something, right? Um, make it super easy here. What do I own? 10,000, I own uh, 10,000 uh, shares, right? Or I'm sorry, yep. 1,000 shares. $50,000 divided but, by 50 bucks. Yeah, you own 1,000 shares. I own 1,000 shares. shares, right? So I own 1,000 shares of company X. It's an energy company, let's say. Now that $50,000 today, Brad, or, or when I invested, it was $50,000. Today, the value of that $50,000 has gone up, let's say, by, let's say by 50%. And let's say you know, I did really, really well. Now that $50,000 did awesome and is worth, I don't know, $65,000, right? It went up by 25, 30%, whatever it was, right? Today, now it's dropped. And now my valuation of that stock is only 45 grand. How did I not lose money here? Because you still own the same thousand shares. The asset that you bought were shares and you still have those shares. 
Okay. If you, if you decided that for whatever reason, because you need a whole bunch of toilet paper now, then you needed to sell all of those shares and then bring in the $45,000. Now there's a difference between what you paid. And when you turned that thing back into dollars, how many dollars you got back for it. But as it stands right now, what you did is you just converted dollars into shares, right? You traded one asset for another, and then you still have that asset that you traded it for. But the mentality that we want to unwind here is as it went from 50,000 to 55,000 to 57,000 to 60,000, you were counting those as now I have that much money. And unfortunately, you're taught this is public sentiment, right? This is actually measured. Um, investor confidence is measured that as my stock portfolio goes up, I feel more confident to spend money or to, to make decisions on the other side, right? Because because of how confident I'm feeling and, and you know, what, where I'll be in, in retirement. But that's the downside is your wealth actually didn't advance unless you somehow took those earnings and bought more shares, right? And bought more shares and bought more shares. Now I actually control more assets and I'm actually more wealthy as measured in assets rather than just measured in the, the valuation of something. So the media right now, and then we'll get to how the coronavirus is affecting this, the media right now is valuing or how they're determining money made and lost is based off of speculation from some random dude on Wall Street that says, hey, this asset was worth $200. Now it just dropped 20%. So we lost 20% of our money. But the asset is still there. So what you're saying is by definition, because you don't own money, you own an asset. You don't own money, just like you don't own money, you own a real piece of real estate. Real estate if you yep. sell that real estate and exchange it, now we're talking in terms of dollars. But the second you trade in those dollars, now we have to look at it in terms of assets owned, not in valuation of the asset, yep. right? Okay, yep. so we look yep. at that and we go, all right, there's the fund fundamental foundation. Nobody made money, nobody lost money, unless you sold. You own the exact same amount of assets, the exact same amount of stock. Is that where we're at? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. And amateurs value what they do based on spec the speculation level, right? The, the, the public opinion or evaluation. Okay. True investors are looking through that to the actual assets that they own and they make decisions at that level. And, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I saw a post, I can't, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was on Bloomberg or something like that. And the headline was, world's top X number of billionaires lose $200 billion in wealth in the first X number of dollars or X number of minutes in the market. And this lady tweeted about it and she goes, except for the fact that this is much different than other financial crises because these companies are actually still making money, right? So it's like the companies that you own share in are still turning a profit. They turned a 4%, I think it was on average 4% profit in quarter one. Whereas in the past, when there's been a financial crisis, they're not making any money at all. So here we might've lost valuation, but we're still making money. And so this is where, when I realized that I was like, huh. And then that's when your live kicked in and I was like, oh my gosh, here's exactly what they're doing. So yep. talk to us now. All right, so the backstory to where Josh is leading with this is why, how could public opinion be so swayed in the markets, it, it, it felt very reminiscent of 2008. I don't think we're headed into, at least I hope anyway, we're not headed into the same sort of crisis because we don't have the same, the, the, the same issues going on. This, this is, I think this is much more of a flash in the pan. Um, although I, I do think another 2008 is on the horizon, but it, it felt very reminiscent. I remembered, so I was, like I said, I was in downtown New York City working for Goldman Sachs when everything melted down. Like I was literally our building was next to Lehman Brothers. And if you remember anything about what was going on in 08, things were shaky and rocky. Um, there was Fannie and Freddie stuff going on. There were, there were some other companies that had issues, but it wasn't until Lehman literally overnight disappeared that then everybody accepted, wait a minute, this is fundamentally different than what we've seen before. And, and the economy started to process it and deal with it. And that was, that was really the off the cliff moment for the economy in 2008. We were literally next door to Lehman and we were walking to work, getting off the subway, walking in as they were filing out with cardboard boxes. So like we were at ground zero as this was all happening and it was fascinating to see behind the scenes of how it was being dealt with. But before I share a couple of the meetings, like it was my Jerry Maguire moment when I realized like, holy, like to be in some of those meetings behind the scenes. But 
before we went there, I want to back up a couple more years. And part of my story that I don't share because people fall asleep because it's that boring. Um, before I decided I, want to go, I wanted to go into Wall Street and banking, um, I thought I wanted to get a PhD in accounting. I know you're already like yawning at that, like how boring <laughs> would be getting a PhD in accounting. But it, it, what was fascinating to me is we married the, the discipline of economics to accounting and we tried to use accounting data to then look at the economy and understand what was going on. And one thing widely studied by PhD level accountants, because the data that's actually available to see what's going on in the markets is all the public accounting information that's released. So there's actually a very interesting discipline there where we study recessions, we studied growth of companies, we studied the, the movements of the stock markets through this lens of publicly available accounting information to try to figure out what the heck was going on. Right. And what, what I spent a year studying as I was getting ready to go in and get a PhD, um, which I, I changed directions, which that bullet dodged. Yeah, no kidding. Survived there. But the, the year that I was prepping for that, I got into the study around what's called earnings management. Okay. And exactly like it sounds, it's only one notch below like financial statement manipulation <laughs> or fraud, right? But it's actually a completely acceptable in the world of accounting to manage earnings, okay? Because the market, the way it's really driven is off of whether a company hits or misses its quarterly and then annual earnings projections, okay? okay. And a company can be penalized even if, just like we're talking about, even if they're profitable, but if they just miss what the market thought that they were going to make, if they made X, but the market thought they were going to make X plus something else, their stock can still be hammered. Mm. Okay. So even, so it has nothing even, to, even if they're profitable and even if they have a good quarter per se, if they don't hit expectations, they can still be quote penalized. They can still be, their stock price can be penalized because they didn't hit targets. Okay. Like I said, they can still be comp totally profitable, paying out dividends, earning money, growing, just not at the rate everybody thought they were going to. And this goes back to the wild speculation that happens in the market. Trading happens when earnings projections are made People are in and saying, "Wow, oh, if they're going to make that much money, I'm going to buy because they'll go up. And then if they don't go up, oh, everybody's mad. And then right, it comes back right. to where okay. it should have been. And so this whole idea of earnings management is there to try to smooth that out and allow companies to deal with this highly volatile concept that's going on. So what companies do, what gap accounting actually allows you to do is um, if you're good at it and you stay just within the rules in this gray area, you can wait to either release good news or bad news, depending on when it would make the most sense for you. So literally every financial, like every major company crash, like, like Enron is probably one of the most famous ones. Um, waste management was another big, huge fraud case that came out. They're all, it's all done through this same mechanism of just managing how you account for things. Okay. Okay. That's it. Just like where we put losses and, and, and how it, it's all accounting. It's all smoke and mirrors. Why, it's all, why would it's all numbers. Okay. So why would somebody or why would a company want to do this though? And you explained this on your other live too. Like why wouldn't a company just report what actually happened up and Be down? Because again, they have a target given to them externally that they're now held to. Okay. So if, if I was giving earnings of, of let's say $100 million and I'm about to post $120 million, you might think that we would want to report the $120 million and exceed expectations. Right. But actually what they want to do is they'll take the extra 20 million, hide it in their accounting, and then wait until maybe the next quarter when they were again projected to make a million and they only hit 80. They'd rather then or release the 20 to hit the target, right? And keep everything nice and level rather than show, because 100 million, 100 million is still 200 million. But if they, if they show 100 and 100, they get one result. But if they showed 120 and 80, they could actually get a much worse mm -hmm. result. So they want to manage those earnings to be in line with expectation and to make a nice, smooth statement. Because the, uh, what? I mean, like the government or whoever's reporting on or whoever's like setting these targets, they don't like numbers going up and down? Like they yeah, don't, it's they, not... It, it, and it's not the government, it's, it's the financial markets the financial in markets. general, okay. right? The, everybody that, that's researching and, and like all of this that's going into it, yes, there are expectations set that if, if something is moving a lot, it's hard to get our, our head around. We like things that are, that are even- That are steady. That are, that, yeah, that, 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 that move 
in a way that we can explain. But as entrepreneurs know, and as anybody that runs a business and are listening to this podcast, I mean, you know that you could have a $60,000 a month and then a $45,000 a month, or you could have a you know $10 million a month and then an $8 million a month. And so, and it's always interesting. You, you look at these companies of like Apple and, and Google and like things that you're like, they've got to go in. It's not like they, oh yeah, they make the same exact dollar amount within 1 million every single month. I mean, that'd be ridiculous and ludicrous to think. Yep. You're and if, if you want to do a little more looking into it, look up a documentary called Chasing Madoff. Okay. So it was about the dude who found and, and uncovered Madoff. And it was a forensic accountant that just basically lives by the premise. There's no such thing as straight lines in finance. So the straighter the line, the more manipulation that's happening. And if it's a perfectly straight line like Madoff was, there has to be fraud. Got it. Right? So there are no straight lines in finance. Um, but they want them. We want them there. We want, we like that graph, right? That just goes from bottom left to top right, nice and steady. And so they're going to put it on their paperwork and this is legal. Yep. Gray area legal, but legal to be able to hold funds. And it sounds like profit and losses. Yes. So I feel like that's an important part of the talk story here. So, so the example I used on my live might make sense here. Let's say I'm a company that sells iPhones. Okay. Oh, I dropped my iPhone. Let's say, let's say we sell these, right? Okay. And I have a whole bunch of inventory Wait, of iPhone I, I, iPhone cases or iPhones? Well, a case, Whatever, let's say right. cases. Okay. That probably makes more sense. Okay. Let's say I sell iPhone cases, okay. right? And I've got a whole warehouse of iPhone 10 cases. Then the iPhone 11 comes out. How much do you think I can still sell my iPhone 10 cases? Were they still worth what they were worth? Or is demand going to shift in one iPhone 11 cases? Mm, yeah, a demand will shift. They're, sure. they're probably going to want. So if, if what I used to be able to sell, I, maybe I could used to sell it for 20 bucks, but now my demand for that is drying up because now 11s are coming out. Everybody ends up buying 11 and they don't need cases for their 10 anymore. If I have $100,000 of inventory of iPhone 10 cases, it's not worth what it was a few months earlier. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. And so technically there's some wiggle room in when I can announce and say, hey, this inventory is not going to sell for what it was supposed to sell for. That's a small example. And there's, there's bigger scale to this to where it, communicating that type of a loss is what I want to manage. Right. So if I'm a big multi-million, multi-billion dollar corporation and I'm holding inventory or product or something that all of a sudden now I'm stuck with it and I cannot sell it for the original value that I thought I was going to be able to sell it for, I am stuck with it. I've got to dump yep. it. But what you're saying is, is I get to more or less or the company gets to within a certain extent hold that and gets to determine when I release that financial information on the actual statements that I release to the public. Yep. Wow. Wow. So now let, now we find ourselves in this coronavirus scare and the, the companies that legitimately are affected by this are airlines, cruise ships, hotels. Like there is a sector of the economy that is materially impacted that the city of uh, you mentioned it was city of Austin, right? Just lost $75 million, right? 350 so, million. 350 million, right, yeah. whatever that would be, right? So there are some actual impacts to the economy, but why is the tech industry down? Why is the, you know, why is the food industry down? Like why are, why is the entire, I mean, the S&P 500 and the Dow measures the entire economy. Why is the entire economy yeah. down when really it should just be connected to one or two? Well, let's go back to this iPhone case seller example. If I have bad news that I'm waiting for a time to release it, when would you want to release it? When all of my peers and everyone else is doing really, really well? Or would I want to release it when there's general negativity out there that I could sort of slip it into the noise and no one will notice? When would you want to release it? I mean, I'd want to release it on a time when everybody's doing bad. Yeah, because then I can release this information that again, nobody understands how we got there. Nobody understands gap well enough. Even the people reporting on financial companies can't read financial statements. That's the big secret. Mm. Like they don't understand balance sheet income statement, statement and cash flows. But if I can release it, and then when I have to go report my earnings, I can say, don't blame me, the coronavirus, the whole economy was down. We were, it was just, it was just everything. And then it'll all be fine. And then I got to release this. So what companies do is they time this and say, I'm going to wait around and I'm dumping this 
And then everybody does it all together and they use it as an opportunity to get rid of that. Okay. So if I'm understanding you correctly, and this is the part that blew my mind and I was like, oh my gosh, because guys, like, think about this and correct me if I'm wrong here with what you're saying, Brad. Company, we've got uh, the S&P 500, but that's 500 companies, right? I don't know how this time. So we got 500, 500 largest companies, 500 yeah. largest companies in the country, right? 500 largest companies. We've got great economy right now. Trump's in office, economy's booming. Everything's going great or whatever. Somewhere along this whole entire process of everything, they're going to get caught up, make a mistake, have a bad month or a bad quarter. They have inventory that they now are holding. They have bad stocks or whatever that they're like, ah, okay. Like, we could report these, but everybody else is doing well right now. Everything else is going good. If we were to release that right now, that would really hurt us because everybody else is doing well. If we're not doing well, then that would make us look bad. Disproportionately punished. We are, yep. even if we might be doing just, off, just fine, if we look bad compared to everybody else, then we're going to be disproportionately punished. So yep. let's wait. Not only are you not only are you measured against earning standards, you're measured against the market as a whole right. as well, right? And because it, the market is so liquid, if if nobody likes you today, they can sell and move on to somebody else tomorrow. Right. right? So much cash, liquid cash in the in yep. the com- in the markets right now. So you've got the markets going and doing super, super well. So these 500 companies, and I'm sure more, much more than 500 companies are doing this. They basically wait and then they go okay we can only hold off for so long where's the next panic where's the next down where's the next out for us for us to be able to dump this the economy's been good for a really long time so they've been holding they've been holding they've been holding and now all of a sudden coronavirus hits coronavirus comes in and goes panic and so the market starts to go like this everybody starts to go like this just a little bit and so the companies go now that's what's happening i it feels too reminiscent of 2008. Like, do I have examples that I could pull up and show you? No, but that's what we studied that happens, right? Wow. Like we have empirical evidence that in every recession, that's what happens. And it feels too fast, too quick, and too unrelated to, to, to a, a medical scare that it could, I don't think it could be anything else. I don't see how it could be anything else. And, and this, I mean, guys, right along with the fact that coronavirus, I mean, like, we're, you're not going to die from it if you get it. The only people that have died in America right now are what? People that are 70 plus and compromised yeah. immune systems. So like right. coronavirus isn't going to kill you. It's not, it's not like literally people are dropping dead in the streets over this. I mean like- No, and it's not, no one's turning into zombies, at least to my knowledge, right? right. I mean, unless it evolves into a walking dead scenario, mm-hmm. I think we're going to be fine. I think we're going to be fine too. Okay, so what happened? I, I want to get back to this whole thing, the story that happened at Goldman. Okay. Because you, you keep saying like, this feels reminiscent of 2008. This feels reminiscent of the, the recession. Like what yes. happened there that led you to believe this? Okay. So now I entered Goldman with this empirical knowledge and understanding of like how earnings management works and what's going on. And then I got this mixed with the, the understanding of what goes on behind the scenes in a bailout. So 2008, we were being reassured by- So, so just, to, just to clarify, you understand what we just talked about, obviously not the coronavirus, but like the gap- and how these companies will hold these earnings or losses until a yeah. time like this before you start working for Goldman. Before I entered Goldman Sachs. And now so you're working in, for Goldman Sachs. So I came in with that knowledge. And then now we're in, we're in 2008, everything's in full meltdown. And now we're getting meetings called by the top brass of Goldman Sachs, right? So they're holding meetings for us internally to talk about what's going on, the future of Goldman Sachs, reassure us that everything's fine. And they're just and this is when? massive disconnect. This is in 2008. So like, or, yeah. The morning, like, so this is the morning that this all goes down. These are the weeks following okay, okay. The, 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 yeah, the Lehman brother collapse, okay. right? So whenever that, I don't have the date offhand, but yeah, the, the weeks following that, because we were all freaked out. We were all sure. I mean, we were all getting our resumes ready. Like we thought Goldman, like, is Goldman Sachs going to be next? Like what's going to go on? Right. right so right. to keep us all focused as employees and still working so that the company didn't actually go down, there were, there were meeting after meeting after meeting called. And the one I remember specifically was the top brass broadcast to the entire company. Like right? CEO so, dude. Yes. Like the, the heads, heads of Goldman Sachs as a, Hey, this is what's going on with Goldman. Reassure us. Everything are fine. And then, regionally, we were broken out. So we were watching it as a big group in our building, 
And then after that was done, then our local, you know, executives or whoever they were then took Q and a right to kind of talk. So about they so. were like telebroadcasting it to yep. everybody. So you have, I don't know, 300 locations around. I don't know what it is. Right. So everybody's getting the same message and then, and then, and then cut stream, go to your direct authority. Let's okay. talk about this. How's everybody doing? Okay. And so they reassure us Goldman Sachs is totally fine. Everything is great. We're positioned differently than Lehman was for these reasons, and and then everything is fine. And then here's what's going out the bailout, and this is what we're going to do with the money, and this is how it's going to be going. And the whole time, I couldn't help but see this contradiction of Goldman Sachs is fine, but we're taking bailout money. Goldman Sachs is fine, yet we're taking on X number of billions of dollars of bailout. And so when they cut live stream and start talking, they, you could tell they wanted to clear the room as quickly as possible. Right. Conversation. <laughs> and so when they asked, does anyone have questions? It wasn't like, please bring up any questions and help us reassure you. It was more like nobody has any questions, right? <laughs> no one out there dare ask a question, right? <laughs> and this is when I knew my fate was sealed because I found myself all, all of a sudden, like my hand was up and that someone called on me very surprised. And then I was surprised that I looked at my hand. I was like, ah, why am I, but I guess I have a question because I just couldn't deal with the cognitive dissonance that was happening here. Right. Right. Because you're sitting there like, I'm super confused because you have more information than probably most people working at, at Goldman because you have mm-hmm. gone and done this additional research. So they call on you. And, and, and everyone looked at me like, what is, why is this guy asking a question? What are you doing? And like I this, was is, even, this is the Goldman, yeah, this is head Goldman Sachs. So yeah. So I, so I asked the question, I was like, all right, help me understand you're reassuring us that we're completely fine. So why are we taking bailout money? Like, help me understand the difference there. And like, there were gasps in the room when I asked the obvious question that I was going to ask. And the answer was, no, no, don't worry. We're, we're playing the game and we're, we're supporting the bailout. We're, we're, we're being a player in this to express confidence in, in these actions that are being taken. And I don't know about you, but I look at it, and again, like inside of Goldman Sachs, this is a much harder concept to get your mind around, but they actually make markets, right? They're the ones that are really determining a lot of the pricing that's going on. And so now they've got like, knowing what they could do with this, clearly I can see why they took the money. But again, it was was more of of this game that was going on and bailouts, none of that bailout money like went, like think about that, they're already there's already a proposal, may have already passed, I don't even know, for the coronavirus. Those are not going to hospitals to buy like more IV fluid. That money doesn't go directly to the companies, it goes to the financial markets to bolster the, the, the collateral damage. And that's what Goldman was doing, right? They were there prime positioned to take advantage of that. So, so Goldman basically says to you, we're fine, we don't actually need the money. But we're taking it anyway. But we're taking it anyway to the tune of billions, billions. of dollars. And yep. now they get to just randomly go decide what happens with that money? I mean, there were stipulations to it, but, but coincidentally, a couple of months later, the largest bonuses ever paid to Goldman Sachs executives were paid. I mean, that was, you can go back and search that. That happened right? Banks did the, did the same thing. They made some pretty massive investments. So again, it doesn't matter which pocket it came from, right? If my left pocket all of a sudden gets a whole bunch more cash in it, the cash I had in my right pocket, I can now do things with it that I might not have done otherwise, right? So even if it wasn't the exact same dollar, Goldman was positioned. Again, Goldman didn't need the money. Why didn't it go to the companies that actually needed the, why didn't it go? Why didn't it? That's the question. Because it's not meant for that. Financial markets are not directly linked. This is, again, it exposes this, this loss dump idea, exposes the disconnect between actual company performance and what's going on in the market and the valuations and what's happening on the financial side. It's two totally different worlds so, that are only loosely linked. So when the government came in to bail out the banks per se, or I mean, we're considering Goldman a bank, right? So when they came in to bail them out, 
what, like, where does that money go? Like, I mean, I know like Goldman came in to do, but like, what's Goldman going to use the money for? And how does Goldman getting the money help stabilize or rejuvenate a market or the economy? Oh man, there's, there's lots to unpack and I'm going to explain it in a way that is not complete. It's accurate, but not complete. Okay. Okay. So other people would pick this apart and say, no, that's not what happened. Okay. Sure. Other things happened as well. Okay. But, but this is an understanding of it. So what Goldman does to make a market is they will, they will buy shares of companies to then sell to somebody else. That's the definition of making a market, right? They're not buying it for it. Think about a market as like a, um, what do you call it? Like a, a roadside stand, right? And, or a, a flea market, right? The, the, so they're, they're creating a marketplace to, to buy and sell they're, securities. They're, and a lot of times they play the middleman on that. So if you place an order for a sh- some shares, you're not buying it directly from the person who owned it. Goldman goes out and buys them and then sells it to you and they make a spread. There's a bid ask spread. That's where that concept comes from. So they basically, hypothetically, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, and I'm going to super simplify this, let's call uh, this company one or group of companies, let's just call them the hotel companies. All right. And Goldman decides, hey, look, we want to boost the hotel market right now. So in a very, very overview, very basic scenario, you basically are saying they take the money, they go, "Mm, all right, let's go buy up a bunch of their stocks. They buy up a bunch of shares of the company, right? And now they go, hey, now they're for sale for somebody else. And because they bought them up and they are positioned as this leader of the market, all of us suckers that invest in the stock market go, Goldman bought it, Goldman's selling it. It must be good. That's where we go. Yeah. So there's a couple things, right? They have unprecedented amount of market data. So they know which industries are the most depressed yet still the most healthy. So they could take the bailout money, go buy all of that. That action alone increases demand, right? Right. Changes prices just in the act of massively buying industries, but then turning around and guys, if, if you don't think you buy what you're being sold, then you don't understand how you even work in your own life. Like we buy what we are sold. Does that make sense? Like yeah. you it, just in life in general, like when you go to the grocery store, if you think everything you're buying is because you thought of it, you're wrong. Like you buy what you're sold. And so Goldman Sachs is the biggest seller of financial security. So what do you think they started selling? And what do you think people subsequently started buying? The things that Goldman wanted them to. Mm. That's not immoral or wrong. It just is, right? right. Same as I buy peanut butter because I saw right. an ad for it. Who right. knows, right? So, so they have one direct because they, they directly influence demand and then they can then create the market to go sell it once it's recovered or force a recovery into it. That's a very simplified, simplified version of what version. could have been done with it. And that bleeds into the derivative markets were, were some of the most affected, right? There were some credit issues in the market as well that it could have gone to, but it's the same concept where they could find undervalued assets, acquire them, either hold them long enough or change market opinion on them to then bring them back up to their valuation and then, and then bring them back out. And then the politicians get to say, see, everything got fixed because the valuation recovered. But then you missed the point that Goldman got our money to buy it here and then sell it out to the broad public here. That's so crazy. Make sense? Yes. So, so if, if I'm a bank looking at this and I have precedence, this is what goes through my mind now, in addition to the potential of companies dumping losses to just say, hey, I'm going to unload all this stuff at this, and it's going to be a better PR move. You can also look at banks saying, man, if there's, it's hard for me to, I, I want free money just like anybody does. When, when can banks get free money? When the economy's good or when the economy's bad? When the bad economy's bad. And it's bad. Mm. So why don't those companies who really control a lot of this make their similar moves to say, oh, we need a bailout. It's not going to hospitals, it's going to the financial firms. And they have a lot of control over the public opinion of what's going on. So this uh, emergency spending package that Trump administration passed, this eight point whatever billion dollars that he signed into it, it's not like this is getting a check written to the hospitals to go out and do this. There is a large percentage of this money that is going to the markets. And here's why I believe that. This is the math I did a couple of days ago. So this is probably diluted a little bit. 
But when I did it, um, it was $8.3 billion. And so per death, that was $26 billion approved two, per person two, who died. 2.6. Two, 26 billion per person if it was only 8.3. Maybe 26 million. No, 26 million is okay. what it must have been out of 8.3 billion. Yeah, probably 26 million. So I put a B instead of an M. It, and across, then, or, across the world? Yeah, across 3,000. So 8 million billion divided by 3,000, I think is what I did. It, yeah, 2.7, million, $2.8 million per person who died worldwide, not even in the US. Not even in the US. And that was, when that was passed. Wide. Worldwide. And then, or if you look at it just for everybody who's sick, there were about 100,000 cases diagnosed at that point worldwide. So that puts it at about 800 grand per person diagnosed. So if you believe that 8.3 billion is going to go to hospitals, like, do you really believe that 800, it costs $800,000 to treat somebody or to prevent that? Like, no, it, there's no possible way that that's where it's going. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, this is where you have to put your hat on and actually think for a second and say, well, wait, like this is the math no one expects anyone to really do and say, well, if, if it's an epidemic and it's pumped up and we could all die with this big, yeah, of course, 8.3 billion. And people can't even process how much $8.3 billion is. Yeah, it's so much money. It is so much money. But like, in, the mar in the grand scheme of the markets, I mean, what does Goldman do a year? How much oh, money do they manage? Yeah. Trillions, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a drop in, in that bucket, right? But so it's not going to treat people with the coronavirus. That's not what just got passed. It's to bolster. And I even read, I pulled up an Economist article before we got on. And the, 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 if you really read and look for this, it says to, for the financial industry, like to, to ah, I wish I had the quote here in front of me. I was just reading through a bunch of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's not, where did it say? It said it right here. It said, we don't, so it won't, this is what he was talking about the bailout. We recognize that this is the rate cut that the Fed did. It won't reduce the rate of infection. It won't fix a broken supply chain. We get that. We do think we, we don't think we have all the answers, but we do believe our action will provide a meaningful boost for the economy. So all they're, that's all that they're trying to do is fight this, this fear valuation of everybody thinking that they lost money. And the only lever they have to do that is into the financial industry. So uh, arbitrary numbers here, just because, you know, there, there absolutely is a direct impact of the coronavirus on the economy from a standpoint of people aren't moving, right? Like yeah. people are going, I mean, heck, we got a quarantine notice, right? I mean, like my word, right? So like, and people, I went to Walmart the other day, like I said, everything sold out, which I, I said this to Lee the other day, I was like, man, Walmart must love the coronavirus. This like, comes. holy cow, mm -hmm. man. They just stocking up, right? This is yep. make their shares look so great. Sure, people bought fewer plane tickets, but they bought a boatload more toilet right. paper. Why is the entire economy down? Right, and that's kind of my thinking is like, we're still, like, we're still spending money. And never before in history have we literally been able to spend money while quarantined. Like, we could literally be locked up and be spending just as much, if not more. Think of how many people Probably shop more. when they're bored. Right. Yep. So they're like, I'm not going to work. I'm not going here. I'm going to sit home. I'm going to buy clothes. So how does the market lose X number of dollars? So you're saying, Hey, look, and this is guys, I mean, we just want to be clear here. This is speculation based on education, right? I mean, we don't yes. have hard facts to back this up, but this is through education of, of what in your experience. So it's like, yeah. we have a hit to the economy. People aren't buying airline tickets. People aren't traveling as much. Maybe they're, you know, not going on vacations as much. There are certain aspects of that that are hurting. But at the same time, because they're not spending money there, chances are they're spending it elsewhere. And even if they weren't spending it elsewhere, that's one sector of the, of the economy that's going down. So where, like, why is the stock market crashing? And you're saying, hey, pretty good guess. Can't guarantee it, but pretty good guess. Let's look at earnings management. Let's look at the gap. Let's look at these companies that where the economy has been good for so long. They've been holding, holding, holding. They need to dump. Here's a chance to dump. Let's dump off and drop the stock market 5,000 points. All right. And then let's look at the incentives in the financial space as to where the bailout money is going to go and see how they could affect it as well. And let's see if we can get a chunk of that 8.3 billion bucks that Trump just approved. Because if we get rid of more of our shares, we're going to get more money hypothetically, right? Okay, yep. so 
I want to briefly switch here before we wrap up and talk about why you think that this correction, this coronavirus scare, the market's dropping 5,000 points, potentially more. I mean, I don't know, it's five or 6,000 now. It's on Monday. I don't know what it is today. But why you think this is a flash in the pan or why you don't think this is going to be the next big 2008 recession or Great Depression or whatnot when a lot of people are speculating that it could be? Why do you don't think, not think that it's headed that direction? Yeah, I don't think it's the pin that's going to burst the balloon, right? And, and I, I think it's because it's too focused and too localized and almost too sensationalized. Like the average person didn't understand what was affecting everything in 2008, um, where people can get their head around, all right, there's lots of people sick. We could all get sick. Like it's, it, it's a little too tangible and it's a little too narrow for that. So I, I don't think it's going to be the pin. Um, and also we already saw the fed take action. Interest rates got lowered. Um, I I just, I just can't see it affecting. I I think the recession is going to come, um, from a different pin, um, which is going to be more linked to either interest rates, uh, debt. It's going to be a financial issue, not a, a medical Medical issue or something like that. Unless a war breaks out, it could be that as well. But I think it's going to be more linked to, again, upheaval and changes in, in interest rates. I, I think the Fed is going to run out of the ability to continually lower interest rates. I mean, we're already at 1% now. And, and so when, when that lever stops working, then that's when we're going to start to see that the, the pin will emerge that will burst that bubble. And, the, and especially right now where politics is, um, it, it, it makes no sense for either side to have the, the economy completely sideways right now. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I, I, I just can't imagine this being it. Yeah, and I think it's super interesting what you said right there at the beginning, which is, hey, like, consumers are educated for, for once. In this particular context, it's like, hey, the markets are at every single headline. If I pull up my phone right now, every single headline it is, it's markets tank due to coronavirus. Coronavirus scare wreaks havoc on economy. Coronavirus is that to the global economy and what to do about it. So it's all centered around one thing. And people, I think, are kind of under this assumption of, hey, once we get get right, once the coronavirus comes under control, everything else is going to go back to normal because now everything else is fine. Everything was good before. So let's just get past this and everything is going to go back up. Right? Yep. Okay. So, but in 2008, when my credit was torn up, mine wasn't, but the average person, when their credit was torn apart and they couldn't get a mortgage, they couldn't refinance things like they, people couldn't get out of it. Right. Right. But now when everything is back, they'll book more plane tickets, they'll book more cruises and it'll all like, it'll, it'll sort of self-correct it. Yeah. Yeah. And what it's doing. And jobs. There was a great opportunity for, for earnings management and the financial industry to, to do some pretty awesome stuff with it. And if you're an idiot and invest in the stock market, I mean, I feel like now might be a good time to buy some stocks, but I mean, don't do that. Listen to Brad instead. Okay. Last question that I have for you, then I'm going to, I'll let you go. I know you're busy over there. Um, we got this oil war going on with Russia and all that. Are you, are you familiar with that? Russia and Saudi Arabia and oil dropping below 30 bucks a barrel on Monday and all that, Jess? Parts of it, but give me your take on it. I've just got it piecemeal so far. I, I, that's the same. And, and I haven't done, I just didn't know if you had any thoughts on it. If not, no big deal. But I just know that uh, I, I watched a, a podcast by Dan Penna. You know, Dan Penna? Trillion dollar, mm-hmm. yeah, trillion dollar man. He he mm-hmm. was, he did a bunch of oil deals and stuff like that over in the the Middle East a, a while back, and he was basically saying how look like the Saudi Arabia is going to get fed up with fracking and fed up with people over here and the U.S. You know, m- drilling for oil and all that, and he's saying how you know they they claim that they only have a couple hundred billion barrels or whatever whatever it is reserved. He's like they've got trillions and trillions. I've seen it; it's insane. They could literally starve us. Like they could give away oil for the next like one or two years and still be fine set on oil, like literally for free, like all this stuff, right? So my thought process was, oh, so Saudi Arabia gets mad at Russia. They're mad, and Saudi Arabia is like, since they're fighting with Russia, they're gonna drop drop the oil prices all the way down and in theory hurt a lot of people in America and hurt a lot of people around the world because if they control the oil prices and can produce it and give it away 
for lower than what we can produce it here, then that's going to hurt our economy. Do you, I mean, is there any truth? Do you know anything about that? Or do you not want to speak on that right now? Yeah. I mean, again, I'll, I, I don't know specifics, so I'll, I'll refrain from that on the specifics, but I'll just ask the stupid question that no one will ask. How is free energy a long-term negative for anybody? Like, I like free stuff, especially free stuff that's very, very useful. So again, it's, it's a very localized pain that I think that if, if Saudis are stupid enough to give their oil away or give it away below what they can produce it at, yes, they can affect other countries' abilities to profitably, because what the wipe away, what generally what goes on in oil wars is producing companies have their marginal cost to produce a barrel of oil, right? And if I can, if, if Saudis can do it for 10 bucks, but it costs um, Russia $15, right? Then Saudis can sell oil at 12 bucks, still make a profit, not as much as they were, but still make a profit and make it economically non-viable for Russia to produce oil. Right. Because it costs them marginally more than it does. And I think it's a pretty well-known fact that marginally it's, it's really easy to get the oil out of the ground in Saudi Arabia versus fracking in the United States or offshore oil wells in, in Russia. Yeah, and the thought process behind it is, is the Saudis are pissed off because they are losing their power because we're doing it now. Yeah. They're losing the thing. So they're just going to sink yeah. it, sink the price until it, you have to buy it from them. And then they're going to go, okay, now we have power again. Let's put it back up. And, and what people don't understand, uh, maybe they do, but what a lot of people miss here is, so there's been a, a monopoly created in the Mideast where they all agree at what price they're going to sell. Right. So the only way you can maintain that is to keep other competitors that can threaten that out. Right. And so this has happened lots of times. It happened Brazil. There was a big scare about how much maybe oil Brazil had in the same thing. And they reacted and they dropped prices to eliminate competitors. And then they can raise it back up and enjoy the profits that they want to have. So that I think definitely is, is probably the game that's, that's happening. That's being played there. And, and I think it definitely affects a country like Russia significantly more than it affects the United States. Um, in the, in the long run, um, I, I think it definitely, it, cause, cause Russia uses oil as, as currency and as power as well. Um, where the United States, we are so much more self-sufficient than most countries and we can pivot and change a lot faster than, than, than other countries can that it, I, to me, I, I think it's a, it's a short-term thing for the Saudis to keep cool. in their power. And man, I would much rather burn all of Saudi's oil now, <laughs> even if it's expensive or change, because when it's gone, it's gone. And, and we got a whole bunch in our country. <laughs> I, I, I don't see a downside to using up right, right. Their, their resources that way. I'd send them paper dollars all day long there for their go. oil, because oil is a real thing and paper's paper. But yeah, I don't know. That, 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 I think that's what's, what's going on. And there, there definitely are bigger, broader Issues. concerns yeah. that happen there as, as you, because, because oil and energy is almost like currency um, at, at this stage. And yeah, so, yeah, sure, I think it definitely, sure. definitely can cause lots of, of short-term chaos. But, but the bigger thing is, is it's more that energy independence. And if I can't develop my energy, because it, it takes a lot of money to develop energy, Right. And if they shut my ability down and it all goes bankrupt, it now sets me back years and years and years as a country to be able to develop it effectively, right? So it can be definitely a tool Got for it, that. got it. Okay. All right, man. Well, I appreciate your time. The shortest, cool. episode, shortest episode we've ever done. Look at that. We made it in an hour, bro. Under an hour. Look at that. that was insane. Hey, man, I really do appreciate you coming on. Guys, coronavirus. Awesome. This is how it affects the economy. This is what's going on behind the scenes. Don't freak out, all right? If you get it, take some vitamin C, get a good night's sleep, wash your hands and everything will be well. Back to normal. Guys, as always, uh, hustle, hustle. God bless. Do not be afraid to think different. Uh, we'll link Brad's podcast down below, the Rise Up Live Free podcast. Go to cashflowtactics.com slash podcast or cashflowtactics.com slash listen to check that out. Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and a review. Uh, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you all. I love you all. And I will see you on the next episode Monday. Guess what? One day before the Traffic Secrets launch is Monday. Stay tuned for that episode. We've got an amazing, amazing episode for you planned. I will see you then. I love you all. I'll see you on Monday. Take it easy, fam. Peace. 
Yo, what's up, guys? You've been listening to the Think Different Theory with myself, Josh Forty, which I like to call a new paradigm of thinking. And real quick, I got a question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message of positivity and making the world a better place is if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this is out on that you like my stuff and that I'm doing something right. So if you could take like three seconds out of your day and subscribe, leave a rating and a review, I would be forever grateful for you. Also, I want to hear from you. I want to know your feedback, your ideas, and your questions for future episodes. So be sure to hit me up on Instagram in the DM at Josh Forty or via email contact at thinkdifferenttheory.com.